Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today I had the honor of interviewing one of the most inspirational people I've ever met, Jacqueline Moray Katate, who is a genocide survivor of the Rwanda genocide campaign. And she tells her story on the Wilds Cast. And also I asked her about what she thought about what's happening today in Ukraine. Take a listen. Welcome to the Wilds Cast, everyone. I am so excited to uh, be able to welcome and introduce someone I have a great, great of respect for, Jacqueline Moray Katate. Hope I sound, said that correctly. Uh, Jacqueline is a internationally recognized genocide survivor and a human rights activist. She was born in Rwanda, and Jacqueline was nine when she lost her parents, all of her six siblings, and most of her ex extended family to the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Uh, Jacqueline was actually inspired to share her story of survival and hope for first time back in 2001 after she listened to the story of the late Holocaust survivor, David Gewurzman. Did I say that right, Jacqueline? David Gewurzman? Yes. yes. Uh, who became a dear friend and mentor to Jacqueline. And since then, uh, Jacqueline has delivered hundreds of genocide prevention and human rights presentation at schools. The way Jacqueline and I actually met for the first time was uh, a on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We sat on the same panel, um, was sponsored by the New York State Bar, and I was just blown away and just so impressed with um, her incredible story and, um, and the activism that she is doing. Um, she has spoken here throughout the United States, Germany, Israel, Ireland, Bosnia, Belgium. She's addressed the United Nations General Assembly. And her story and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, Jerusalem Post, CNN, NBC, ABC, MTV. I mean, she's all over. She's an incredible personality and has also received a number of prestigious awards and is the founder and president of Genocide Survivors Foundation, which is a New York-based non-for-profit which educates people about the crime of genocide. And it is such an honor to have you with us, Jacqueline. I just want to mention something else. That Jacqueline has her BA in politics from NYU, from New York University, and got her JD from my alma mater, uh, Benjamin Cardoza School of Law. So I don't think we overlapped. I think we weren't there at the same time, but we went to the same school. So that's another connection. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, thank um, you so much. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for having me. It is really such a pleasure and honor. Tell us... For those who might not know, our listeners, and we're going to get into what's going on in the Ukraine in just a little while, because I want to hear your take and your perspective, given your own personal story and what you've been doing. Um, but for those who might not know, what was the Rwanda genocide? How long did it last and, and how did you survive? Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the genocide. So the genocide took place uh, in uh, starting in April of 1994. Uh, specifically on the night of April 6, 1994, and it lasted for approximately 100 days. And in those 100 days, uh, it's estimated that over a million people, uh, most people say 800,000, but the Rwandan government has actually estimated that over a million people uh, were murdered, systematically murdered, uh, in those 100 days. So the killings were very, very efficient. Uh, for many reasons. Uh, one, because like any other genocide, this was uh, very much planned. Uh, there was a dehumanization campaign which preceded the genocide where Tutsis, my ethnic group, were portrayed in the newspapers, on the national radio as, as the enemy, as invaders, as cockroaches, uh, which needed to be exterminated. Uh, the genocide was also preceded by years, uh, decades of... Uh, systematic discrimination of Tutsis, Tutsis being the minority ethnic group uh, in Rwanda. So when I was born in Rwanda and when I was growing up as a child in Rwanda, I was aware that I lived in a country where my ethnic group, members of my ethnic group were treated as second-class citizens. Uh, the Hutu extremist government at that time, for example, had um, ethnic quarters in schools where they only allowed very few Tutsis to go to high school and to go to college. 
Uh, and prior to the genocide, uh, the country, Rwanda, had also witnessed a number of um, genocidal killings, like massacres, uh, as early as in, starting in 1959, throughout 60s and in the 70s. So the genocide uh, against the Tutsi in 1994 was really a result of these years of uh, systematic discrimination, of dehumanization, of killings of Tutsis, uh, always with, uh, with impunity. Um, my story of survival, I mean, it's, it's a long one. I'll probably take uh, more time than we have to um, actually go through and, it. And about, b- before, you, before you get into your story, uh, Jacqueline, and I do want to hear it, I think it's important for us to hear just briefly as, as best as you can, but um, was there any reason given by the Hutus for this systematic, this attempt at systematically exterminating uh, eradicating the the Tutsis was there was is just like any form of bigotry and racism, like what the Nazis did to the Jews is just like made up stuff and there's just pure hatred. Yeah, so you know the the, the ideology of genocide or the anti Tutsi propaganda really began with uh, colonialism. Uh, so when uh, Germans were actually the first uh, Europeans uh, to reach Rwanda, followed by Belgians. So after World War One, uh, Rwanda became a protectorate of, uh, I mean, Belgium became a protectorate of Rwanda. And when the Belgians were ruling over Rwanda, they, uh, at that time, when they came to Rwanda, when the Europeans came to Rwanda, Rwanda was a monarchy ruled by a Tutsi king. And initially, the Germans and later the Belgians uh, favored the Tutsis because they were in power. They were the ruling, uh, you know, the, 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 the king was a Tutsi. And after World War One, when many African countries were uh, began asking for independence, Belgium was not very happy that the Tutsi king was asking for independence. So the Belgians switched their favor and their support uh, for the uh, Hutu majority. And the Belgians began this uh, narrative of, of Tutsis being foreigners. So they thought that Tutsis were not really true Rwandans, that they were uh, people who had come from Ethiopia and invaded Rwanda and took over the country from the Hutus. Uh, And this is a kind of narrative that was introduced Mm -hmm. during colonialism by the Belgians, but was later uh, continued by uh, the Hutu extremists who took power after Rwanda became independent in 1961. So when I was born, I was born in a country where Hutu children, my Hutu neighbors, the kids that I went to school with were taught that myself and members of my family, members of my ethnic group, that we were not true Rwandans, that we were foreigners who had come to Rwanda, who had, uh, and whose only goal was to, to oppress the Hutus. That's a kind of narrative and anti-Tutsi propaganda and hatred that was part of the uh, formally, that was part of the educational system in Rwanda. I mean, today you hear from survivors who tell you how many times they were uh, asked to stand up in a classroom prior to the genocide and uh, where the students would be separated, you know, uh, be- between Hutus and Tutsis. And the Hutu children and Tutsi children will listen at this anti-Tutsi narrative was uh, was retold by teachers as part of the formal uh, this formal educational system. Did, so did the hatred. Did you experience that as a child? Yes, growing up, I was very much aware that I lived in a country where I did not have the same opportunities, the same uh, mm-hmm. privileges as my uh, Hutu classmates. Uh, on one hand, uh, we lived in, in, in villages that were not segregated. So the village where I grew up, it wasn't just like a Tutsi village. And that was the case throughout Rwanda. Hutus and Tutsis lived in the same villages, you know, sharing things, like sharing uh, goods and services, going to the same churches, going to the same child naming ceremonies, going to the same uh, weddings. But underneath all that, there was always this narrative and this propaganda that was always propagated by the ruling Hutu extremist government, which always had interest in uh, monopolizing power by uh, propagating this uh, anti-Tutsi narrative and and propaganda. And and how did you survive this? I mean, your whole family was wiped out. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when the genocide began uh, in April of uh, 1984, I happened to be in, uh, in my grandmother's village, my maternal grandmother's village. Uh, so that was partly how I ended up surviving, because from the very beginning of the genocide, I was separated uh, from my family. Uh, the beginning of the genocide actually coincided with the, um, the Easter break or spring break here. Uh, and uh, growing up, I was uh, I attended school in my grandmother's village. So I had left my family village. I had gone to my grandmother's village thinking that I was going to go back to school because the Easter break had just uh, ended. And uh, when the genocide began, uh, as I mentioned, this is something that was, again, prepared uh, in advance, many years uh, in advance. There are many uh, journalists now who have detailed the type of planning that took place before the actual killings uh, happened, including the importation of machetes and, and other weapons, a drafting of lists of prominent Tutsis who will be the first targets of the genocide. There was an extensive training of Hutu youth uh, to, uh, to carry out the, uh, the killings. And mm. when the killings actually started, uh, one of the first things that the, the government asked was the roadblocks be placed throughout Rwanda. And what this created was an environment where a Tutsi could no longer, even those who had the means to flee outside Rwanda in, in search of refuge, could no longer do so. Because the other thing that I failed to mention is that growing up in Rwanda, we had an ethnic-based ID cards. So when you're born in Rwanda, uh, you were labeled as a Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa. And when you became of age, you had an ID. And you carried this ID whenever you went to apply for schools, whenever you went to apply for a job. This was a formal way uh, that the Hutu regime managed to discriminate against Tutsis in really in every aspect of the, uh, of the Rwandan society. So when the genocide started, the roadblocks were placed everywhere. And the Hutu extremists who had planned the genocide said anybody who passed a roadblock and was identified as a Tutsi, either by your physical feature, because there are some phys physical differences, or by your ID card, uh, you if you identified as Tutsi, you were taken aside. If you're lucky, you were shot. But in most cases, you were uh, macheted, you were beaten to death, you were uh, tortured uh, in the most uh, horrific, horrific way. So this became the, the environment in Rwanda in, in April of, uh, of 1994 and for the next 100 days of the genocide. So as a result, I could no longer go back to my parents' village. Uh, my father and my brother who used to come and get me from my grandmother's village could no longer come. And when the killings began in my grandmother's village, uh, we fled. Myself, my grandmother, another cousin who was with us, as long as well as other Tutsis in a village, and uh, we initially fled to a local, uh, what, what would be an equivalent of an uh, like a, a mayor's office or a district office uh, here in the U.S. And uh, we went there because we thought that we would be protected. Uh, I think at the beginning of the genocide, there was this denial. You know, people didn't really believe that. You know, our neighbors, who, as I said, we had many, she had many things with, had gone to the same churches, had gone to the same weddings, that these people would, would murder us for no other reason other than uh, our ethnicity. So we, uh, we fled to the district office, and when we got there, we made thousands of other Tutsis who came there. Uh, in the end, we actually had thousands, uh, more than 30,000. Uh, I think they say people uh, fled there. But it was only within a few days that our Hutu neighbors, the same people who I mentioned, whose children I grew up you know, playing with, going to school with, these Hutu neighbors started following us uh, initially at night and then later on uh, during the day, and they began killing. Uh, they always came mm -hmm. singing that Tutsis were cockroaches, that Tutsis deserved to be exterminated. This is a kind of uh, message and incitement to kill they were listening to every day from the national radio. The Hutu extremists will come to the radio and they will say, Tutsis are enemies, Tutsis are deserved to die. Uh, we must kill all Tutsis, young, old, male, female. The goal in 1994 was extermination of Tutsis and any Hutu was exposed, I'm sorry, opposed to the extermination uh, plan. Uh, while at the county office, I witnessed many killings uh, of uh, many of my relatives from my mom's side. Uh, had fled there, and I witnessed many killings. And uh, I always said that it's a miracle that 
uh, that I survived. Um, long story short, an uncle of mine find, found out that we were there and that killings were taking place every day and uh, that it was really a matter of time uh, before we would be killed. And he miraculously managed to find a, a Hutu man who he paid and who managed to um, get us away from the county office uh, or a district office before we were killed. After that, um, and I'm skipping a lot of details again uh, because of the time, after that, my sure. grandmother, myself, and my cousin, we found ourselves hiding in a Hutu family's home, uh, a Hutu family that agreed to hide us, and we stayed for about uh, a week until our hiding place was discovered. Uh, to this day, we don't know exactly how, you know, uh, the the Hutus who are going around every day and night killing, how they found out that we were there. But uh, I remember one morning, our hiding place was attacked and my grandmother, myself and my cousin, we were um, uh, we, we were being pushed around and we had this, I remember vividly see, having these Hutu men who were armed with uh, bloody machetes. So I knew that they had spent the whole night killing and they were uh, telling the Hutu men who was hiding us that they were going to kill us because we were cockroaches. All Tutsis were cockroaches and all Tutsis deserve to die. This, this, that message was clear. Uh, to Hutu civilians uh, during the genocide. And, and, and at this uh, point, thought, Jacqueline, Jacqueline, at this point, what, what, I mean, had you any contact with your parents? Did you know what, 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 what was happening with them? I mean, you were nine separated from your parents. I had no idea about what's going on uh, in my parents' village. I did not know whether they were dead or alive. There was no way that I could go there because, again, there were roadblocks uh, all over the place. Uh, but I think because I was young and I was naive, I always tell people that throughout the genocide, throughout those 100 days of killings, I really never lost hope that my family was alive. I used to tell myself that certainly, you know, there's a neighbor one of my good neighbors, one of the neighbors where I used to go play, you know, with with my friends. Like I used to believe that somebody will hide them, and that when the killings ended, I would go back to my parents' village and I'll find them, and I'll find my six siblings, and somehow life will go back to you know some type of of normal. So that's a hope that I had uh, throughout the genocide. But there was no way because Rwanda wasn't. The type of country where people could, you know, I mean, at that time, even the few people who had telephones, I mean, everything was cut off uh, by the government. The government really wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, people did not know what was going on. And again, those who had the means to flee uh, uh, were not able uh, to do that. Uh, so after we were discovered and uh, nearly faced death one more time, um, we were lucky again to survive. I always say that uh, people ask me, how did you survive that? And I said, I always say, you know, some people will say it's luck. Other people will say it's God. But uh, whenever I look back at that moment, uh, you know, for me, I really do believe that, uh, you know, it was God who saved me because it wasn't because I was a child. It wasn't because, you know, my grandmother was old lady. I mean, this is the kind of things that the family that was hiding us kept saying, but the Hutu men who had come to kill us kept saying it didn't matter. All Tutsis are cockroaches, all Tutsis deserve to die. But for one reason or another, those men who had kill, uh, come to kill us, they left us. But they also told the Hutu man who was hiding us that he had to, uh, he could no longer hide us, that he had to get rid of us. And uh, it was at that time how, how that- did he know, how, how did he know he was hiding, that he was hiding you? How, how did the Hutus who came? So to this day, I don't know how they found out. It could have been a neighbor who maybe saw right. somebody, saw us or heard us and went and informed them because there was a lot of people. You know, whenever I tell, talk about the genocide, you know, people participate in many ways. There are people who picked up machetes and they killed. And there are people who saw people hiding, you know, in bushes, hiding in, in different par parts of the country. And they would not go and kill them, but, but they report. They report about the, the, the hiding places. There are people certainly who turned away. Uh, yeah, most unfortunately, turned away. this is uh, this is all too familiar because if you study uh, Anne Frank, you know the mm -hmm. famous Anne Frank who was hidden for so many years with her family in Amsterdam, and yeah. ultimately they were given up by others yeah. uh, mm -hmm. to the Nazis. Uh, yeah. But there was a you know righteous family that that hid them. And have you had any contact with the incredible people that hid you? Have you have you stayed in touch with them? 
not not since the genocide not since the genocide and uh, it's actually <laughs> that that story gets a little bit more complicated too because you know in Rwanda you had people who uh who hid people they hid certain people but they killed others um oh, so uh, after the yeah so they 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 may hide somebody because they knew them personally or because in this case my uncle had paid that family to hide us but they also, at the same time, they were going to the roadblocks and killing uh, others. Oh, so after the genocide, I did find out that the Hutu men who had hit us had been accused by others, uh, other Tutsi survivors in the village of having participated uh, in killing um, in killing uh, other Tutsis as well. Uh, so I am grateful that he, you know, he hid me and my grandmother. By the way, my grandmother did not survive. Uh, because uh, after we were discovered in that man's home, uh, he informed my grandmother of an orphanage that was nearby and that was managed by two Italian priests. This was an orphanage that had existed in Rwanda prior to the genocide, where these two Italian priests had come to Rwanda, set up this orphanage where they used to care for children, Hutu children, Tutsi children whose parents had died of malaria and other, other diseases. And when the genocide happened, these two uh, Italian priests were among the few uh, foreigners who, at the risk of their own lives, decided to stay in Rwanda and try to save as many children as they could. And wow. I said few because once the killing started, many of the foreigners who had lived in Rwanda as journalists, businessmen, diplomats, they picked up and they, and they, and they left. Uh, they left once they realized that, you know, a genocide was going on. Embassies, the U.S. embassy, the Belgium embassy, they came and they evacuated their, uh, you know, their people. But they, these two Italian priests refused. Uh, the Italian uh, embassy tried to uh, take them back to Italy, but they said they were going to try to stay and uh, try to protect children. And they stayed and they had that orphanage. So it is in that orphanage where my cousin and I, um, ended up surviving. Even there, we many times we faced, uh, we came face to face with men who entered the orphanage and threatened to uh, to kill us and the other Tutsi children uh, who were there. So there were many instances, even in the orphanage, where we came face to face with death and 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 we survived. But my grandmother would not was not allowed in the orphanage because the Italian priests were only taking in children. They didn't children, want to try yeah. to take in yes because Hutu militias were coming in the orphanage every day looking for Tutsi adults. They would search up and down in every corner. Whenever they found Tutsi adults, they would take them out and they would kill them. So at some point, the two Italian priests decided that they, it was a risk. Uh, to, to, to the children to try to hide any Tutsi adults. So my grandmother was not allowed in the orphanage, but she knew that because of the foreign presence of, of the two Italian priests, that my cousin and I had more chances of, of surviving in the orphanage. And the day that I left my grandmother for the orphanage ended up being the last time uh, that I saw her because after the genocide, I would learn that she was killed. I mean, I never saw her again. But to this day, I don't know exactly where she was killed. Uh, it's one of the most difficult um, thing for survivors, you know, of, 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 of I think of the Holocaust and genocide to not know. We know our families, many of our family members, we know that they were killed, but we don't know where. There's no, there's no, there's no tombstone for them. There's no, not a burial place where we can go and say, you know, this is where my father is. This is where my grandmother is. So with my grandmother and many other relatives, uh, I know that she was killed soon after I, left to the, uh, I went to the orphanage, but um, I never found out, you know, where and, and, and by, by whom. Um, I mean, this is, and they, uh, you know, many people who were killed, they were thrown in uh, mass graves. I mean, you know, during the genocide, I always say there was an intention not only to, you know, to exterminate, uh, Tutsis, but to also to erase any evidence that the Tutsis ever existed. So they would, you know, throw people in mass graves. My own family uh, was uh, murdered uh, by the by 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 the by the river, and their bodies were thrown uh, in that river. So I never had the opportunity to to give them a proper burial as well. Um, they were. How did you? Like, how did, how did you cross? How did you as a nine-year-old just, I can't even imagine how you processed, how you dealt with this just emotionally, spiritually, you know, um, I'm wondering, you know, how your, what you went through shapes your view of people, of humanity, 
you know, you, you said, you said that you believe that God saved you. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly these Italian priests, you know, and there were also in the Holocaust, there were some great people, righteous Gentiles who saved Jews at the peril, at the risk of their own life. Mm-hmm. I've always, I've always wondered, like, how does that, do you look at people differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the you know the the righteous Gentiles and and you know the Hutus, uh, the few Hutus who stood up in 1994 and tried to uh, to protect their Tutsi neighbors, uh, the two Italian priests. Uh, I think for survivors like myself, it's really uh, what gave us you know the courage <laughs> to go on, to recognize that while you know there's so much evil and we had witnessed you know the worst of evil and we had you know, lost our families and we had, you know, lost our innocence that, you know, that there is good uh, in the world as well. I feel for me, that's what has propelled me forward over the past, you know, almost 28 years now um, since the genocide. But uh, I always say that, you know, because when, when we're going through the genocide, especially as a child, it was very difficult to understand how it is that, you know, one day you have your family, you have your parents, you have your siblings, you have goals and dreams. Yes, as I said, I was aware that I lived in a country that had many discriminatory measures against my ethnic group, but I had my family and I had my hopes and I had my dreams. And my parents always said that, you know, it told us that if we worked hard enough, perhaps we'll be one of those few Tutsis who would be allowed to go to high school and college and so forth. And within, you know, a matter of like three months, over 100 days to find yourself in a place where your entire family, your, your neighbors, it wasn't just my, my immediate family, as, I, as you mentioned, but most of my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, gone and murdered by our neighbors, not by strangers, but by people who used to come and, you know, borrow salt from my mother in the middle of the night when they realized they didn't have enough salt to cook, by people who used to meet a church and worship together. It's... Um, it is. It is. It was very difficult for me um, uh, and other survivors. I think, particularly for those of us who are young, to really uh, confront this this type of, of, of reality and this type of evil. But uh, I think for me, what has encouraged me um, is, is really meeting people, knowing that the people there were some people who stood up, and the people that I've had in my life since the genocide, people like David Gertzman. Uh, who I hope will uh, talk uh, more about, and people who, uh, you know, who used to come and help me learn English when I first arrived uh, in this country, the teachers, and uh, people who, to this day, despite all the evils, all the, you know, terrible things that are going in the world, they are still committed to uh, increasing the, you know, the righteous Gentiles, increasing the number of people who actually stand up. Uh, when, you know, genocide and other forms of mass atrocities occur. And I think part of my work now or the motivation behind my work is to do my part to increase the, 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 the number of people who actually stand up in times of, uh, of, 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 of genocide and times of uh, mass atrocities and do the right thing because it's, it, there's no doubt that if there were more righteous Gentiles, you know, during the Holocaust, if there were more Hutus, uh, civilians who stood up in one day in 1994, the genocide would not have happened. So it wasn't just the people who were perpetrating the genocide, but the large majority of the bystanders and the, the, the informants and the people who just let it happen, who people who thought this is not my problem, it's too risky for me to get involved, or it doesn't concern me. As, as long as I'm not being personally uh, affected or attacked, that's not my business. And that type of indifference is really something that I've um, committed my life to, uh, to, 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 to fighting. And hopefully, you know, I, I, I see that maybe, maybe you can tell us a little, um, you, you have, um, you've done something extraordinary, Jacqueline, which is not only survive, but you've, um, you fought back in a sense by starting this incredible genocide survivors foundation, um, with the goal of genocide prevention efforts. Uh, tell us a little about the work you're doing. And I also would love to hear about uh, David Gewurzman, how this uh, this Holocaust survivor inspired you uh, mm-hmm. to get involved in this work. 
Yeah, yeah. So the work that I do with Genocide Survivors Foundation uh, actually stems from uh, my meeting with David and my relationship with David. So when I was um, a sophomore in high school uh, in Queens, in New York, at a, a Martin Van Buren High School in Queens. By, by um, the way, what, what, how old were you when you came here? I was 10. So I came, uh, I, I came a year right after the genocide. Yeah, I came a year. I had an uncle. Uh, my mom's brother, who uh, lived uh, in the U.S., who was out of Rwanda when the genocide happened. And after he found out that my family had been killed and that I had survived, he, he brought me here and he raised me. He, he brought adopted, you here. Wonderful. He adopted me. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, that the, the period, the first uh, few years that I was here were actually very difficult, as you can imagine. I was uh, hunted by many, a lot of nightmares. There are many nights when I went to bed and I would see people chasing me with machetes and I wake up crying and there was just a lot of difficulties, obviously, in, um, you know, adapting to a new culture, learning a new language. Uh, but, you know, I, I was very lucky in that I had, again, uh, a lot of support system and people who really came forward and tried to help me uh, adjust uh, here in America. But when I was... Um, a sophomore uh, in uh, a Martin Van Buren High School in Queens, I, uh, my classmates, my English class and I, we read the book Night uh, by uh, Elie Wiesel. And after we read uh, Night, my English teacher, uh, Miss Goldstein, um, who is a dear friend of mine uh, up to this day, she had the wisdom of trying to find a Holocaust survivor who could come uh, to our class. Uh, and speak to us and share his experience. And um, she managed to uh, connect with uh, a local Holocaust uh, uh, center in Glen Cove, Long Island, um, and uh, where David was a docent. And she managed to have David come to our class and David shared with us uh, his story as a child uh, during the Holocaust, growing up in Poland, uh, in, in a village called Oshitsa, Poland, and how he's family was, uh, uh, you know, uh, persecuted and murdered. His uh, Most of his family members uh, were murdered in Treblinka. Uh, he talked about, you know, out of 800,000 people, uh, Jewish people uh, who lived in his uh, town, only 16 uh, survived. And he shared his experience mm -hmm. of how he lived under a pigsty. He was hidden, him and his family were hidden by a Polish uh, farmer under a pigsty for two years. And he talked about, you know, coming from uh, uh, that hiding place, which he called uh, a grave, into a mass cemetery where, uh, as you know, uh, you know, six million Jewish people had been uh, murdered. And uh, David also shared uh, his commitment to preserving the memory of the Holocaust, to fighting uh, anti-Semitism, uh, racism, xenophobia, all forms of uh, extremism in an effort to prevent what he had experienced uh, as a child during the Holocaust from uh, continuing to happen. And long story short, I ended up, uh, um, after, after David left, uh, my teacher encouraged us to write thank you notes. And in my thank you note, I, I mentioned to David that I had been, that I was a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda, talked a little bit about my experience. I did not know that I would ever hear from him again, but in fact, I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, he and it turns out he read every letter that he got from students. Although he spoke to so many students across the country, and when he came, how, how old were you at the time, Jacqueline? 16. How old were you at the time? I was 16. sixteen. Yeah, this was in two thousand one. And how old was he? How old was was David? At about? that time, I believe David was seventy five. I believe he was seventy five wow. or seventy three. Yes, it was in his mid seventies, mm -hmm. and uh, he. He, he contacted me. At first, he contacted the school. He didn't have my direct uh, contact. And my teacher uh, told me that he wanted to invite me and my uncle to his home. We visited his home. And it was really him who encouraged me to start sharing my story. And uh, the time that I met David was really a time where I also had felt that I really needed to speak out about what had happened in Rwanda. I recognized that there was so little knowledge within my uh, my school, my classmates. They had no idea about the genocide in Rwanda. They didn't even know where Rwanda was. They knew that I was an orphan from somewhere in Africa, but they had no idea. And I felt that, you know, as the only surviving member of my family, I had a responsibility to talk about the type of death 
that they had, you know, died. That them and over a million people had been murdered, not because of what they had done, but simply because of their uh, uh, ethnicity. Uh, so David and I uh, teamed up and between 2001 and 2012, for more than a decade, him and I traveled together all over this country, oh, wow. uh, high wow. schools, uh, colleges, synagogues, uh, churches, community events, where we shared our stories, uh, you know, side by side to try to help our audiences, young and old, recognize that, you know, despite the never again, that was um, uttered after the Holocaust, that the crime of genocide and the ideology of genocide, this ideology that some people, because of uh, how they look like, what they believe, do not deserve to live, that this ideology still exists in the world and that it's high time that we really start doing more to fight this ideology and to do more when we see and hear people being targeted and persecuted and murdered uh, simply because of who uh, who they are. So David and I shared that commitment and he uh, that's why as you read in my bio, he really became uh, a dear friend and, 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 and a mentor. And uh, unfortunately he passed away in 2012. Um, and, you know, that was very difficult for me, as you can imagine. But I, can imagine. Um, I have I have remained for his uh, his wife, Lillian, is still alive. He has uh, two <laughs> children and six grandkids who are still a very uh, big part of my life. And uh, but he despite what he went through, uh, uh, him and I really we shared this 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 hope for, for a better future um, that belief that. The, if we can educate people about the dangers of anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, if we can help people realize that, you know, we have more in common as human beings, that our differences really um, shouldn't matter. David had a quote that he used to say um, during all his, his presentations, and he used to say that people have to recognize that diversity is not adversity. Diversity is not adversity. The problem is not diversity. The problem is when, you know, groups of people, politicians or whoever want to use, you know, physical differences or economic differences, religious differences as a way to, uh, you know, monopolize power and to, uh, and, 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 and to, and, and to pin uh, one group of people against, against another. So that's a type of, uh, you know, things wow. that we try to fight. Well, I'm, I'm sure that you, uh, your continued work on, um, on behalf of of preventing genocide, <clears throat> I'm sure that he would have been very, very proud of you um, for everything that you're doing, Jacqueline. Uh, tell us a little about your view of what's happening in Russia, in the Ukraine specifically. And I, I, um, I know this is not your area per se, but I'm just wondering because, you know, we're all watching sort of in shock and in horror what's happening, mm -hmm. what Putin has done. And I, I wanted to ask you, given the fact that he has targeted civilians, um, he's bombing buses and trains of people trying to flee the country. Would you deem his campaign against the Ukrainian people as some form of genocide against the Ukrainians? Or is that is this different? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been reading a lot of, um, obviously all of us, <laughs> reading and, and, and seeing and, you know, the, the, the atrocities are, are being committed. Uh, against the civilian uh, population uh, in particular, as you said. And, uh, you know, some people have been, you know, uh, comparing it, calling it a genocide, saying never again and so forth. And uh, and I have two things to say uh, about that. One, uh, I don't think something has to be a genocide for us to uh, to do something about it or to intervene. You know, uh, this, is, this is a part of the problem because, you know, even in Rwanda, when the genocide was happening, it took a very long time for uh, the international community to use the word genocide because there is a genocide convention which obligates you know, the Security Council, members of the Security Council to intervene uh, when there is a genocide. So for that reason, they stayed away from, from the G word. They kept saying it's, it's a civil war, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, whatever it was, but it wasn't genocide, right? So there, there's a way that word has been uh, politicized to, to prevent action, which I think is very uh, problematic. So I do think that something doesn't have to be a genocide for people to 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 to, to intervene. Uh, what is clear, as you said, 
you know, what's going on in Ukraine. For me, you know, I think when, when it first happened, I was, I was in shock, like most people, uh, that in 2022, a country can decide to invade another sovereign uh, country and to, because they want to force a country to do whatever it wants to do or prevent it from doing whatever it does not want to do, like this can be allowed to happen. For me, that's already a, a problem in this day and age. That a country, just because they have the power, the military power, the economic power, can decide to invade another country uh, in, in an effort to force it to do one thing or the other. Uh, and I think that when that happens, there is a responsibility on the, on the part of the international community uh, to do something and to, to stop that type of uh, invasion and aggression. Because if that's not checked, I think this is something that's going to be uh, that's going to continue to happen uh, by other countries. I think we have to come together, and some people have, you know, with the sanctions and with uh, with, 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 with the military support and so forth. But more needs to be done because clearly. You know, Putin has not uh, stopped uh, the aggression and the killing and so forth. So I would not call it personally. I would not say that what is going on in Ukraine is, is a genocide, but it is at the very, I, I didn't even say, I would say least, but there is certainly, you know, cases of war crimes and, and, and crimes against humanity happening. There are war crimes because there's been, as you know, it's been reported uh, by various news medias. Like, as you said, there's an indiscriminate targeting of, uh, civilians. It's not just, you know, soldiers fighting soldiers. Hospitals are being destroyed, uh, destroyed uh, places of warships, historical sites are being uh, destroyed. Uh, civilians, apartment buildings are being attacked. And all these things, you know, this is what constitute war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. So personally, that's how I would uh, characterize what is going on, not as a genocide, but mm. certainly there are cases of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And uh, from what, what I've read, even the International Criminal Tribunal uh, is, uh, is undertaking uh, opening an investigation in regards to what's going on. And we yeah. know that um, they are charged with, with prosecuting you know, the crimes of aggression, war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. So, But I, I think that... At the end of the day, uh, what all of us really need to realize and be in agreement is that what is going on in Ukraine is something that should not be going on, should not be allowed uh, to go on. And uh, we as, as individuals, as organizations, as, 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 as states need to keep the pressure up and need to do more to, to stop. The, and, and do you, and, and do you think doing more? You know, Zelensky, the president of the Ukraine, is calling upon the West to enforce a no-fly zone over the Ukraine. Yeah. Now, the United States is reluctant to do that because that could bring, it, you know, America into war against Russia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're talking about a nuclear power who doesn't seem to be have much of a problem flexing, you know, because when we say we have to do more, so obviously we're raising money for relief. It's a huge yeah. humanitarian crisis, you know, yeah. two to three million people now. I, I have friends that have gone to Poland and to, to, um, uh, to other countries, neighboring countries, to try to help with the relief efforts. Mm -hmm. Do you think we should be pushing? You know, and I'm asking you really as a moral. I'm, you know, it's, it's really a moral question because I, I consider yeah. you because of what you've been through and the kind of foundation and work that you do, mm -hmm. I consider you a moral authority, Jacqueline. So do you think morally we should be, we should be doing that? We should be pushing the Biden administration or other Western countries to do this, which could possibly bring, you know, and, and it could escalate things, but it, but it would hopefully stop mm -hmm. Putin's targeting of civilians. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, personally, if it was up to me, I, I would say do everything that is necessary uh, to stop, you know, the killings and the, 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 the indiscriminate attacks on civilians and the, the, you know, the atrocities that are being committed. If that's imposing a no-fly zone, if that's, in, that's, that's sending soldiers, for me, because, you know, the, the concern, as, as, as you said, is people are saying, if we do this, we're going we're gonna to start World War III. Are we prepared to enter World War III? And others are saying, well, actually, you know, World War III has, has, has actually begun. But the thing is, I feel that if we continue to live in a world where we allow those type of 
um, you know, behaviors and aggression and atrocities to be committed. Uh, just because we're afraid of, you know, the consequences that it may have on our, on our you know, economic or political or, you know, uh, uh, security and so forth. Uh, I fear that the more, you know, leaders who are allowed to do that, the more this type of cycle is going to continue. So yeah. I feel like the world has to come together and say, this is not acceptable in 2022. Because I think if that's not, if that does not happen, then it's a matter of time before another powerful country thinks that it can invade another country and try to do this type of same, uh, uh, same you know, commit same atrocities and uh, violation of, of, of rights. So personally, I, you know, I mean, these are the same type of arguments that went on with, you know, with Rwanda, right? People said, we don't want to get involved. We have no economic interest. We have no political interest. Um, uh, but we'll go to, you know, Iraq because we have, we have economic interests there. So I think that, you know, part of uh, my work is really trying to change that type of, of thinking and consciousness and to try to bring people to realize that when, you know, atrocities or, uh, you know, uh, are being committed, when, you know, civilians are being attacked, when, you know, a leader or a country thinks I can go and, you know, do something like what, what Russia is doing to Ukraine, that we have to be a chorus and say, in action and say, this is, this is not okay. And we have to do everything in our power. If that involves, you know, even sending our military and soldiers, that's what has to be done. Because I do feel like we yeah. really have to move towards a world where we cannot let these things happen just because they are in some place that we feel like does not, um, does not directly uh, affect, uh, affect us. Yeah. us. That's, that's, that's really the problem. You know, I think people who have said like, you know, preventing mass atrocities is in, you know, in all our national interests. And by the way, Jacqueline, just um, sort of a proof to what you're saying is in 2008, I believe, mm -hmm. when, uh, I mean, Putin's already gone into um, uh, Georgia and he got into the Crimea and, and, Crimea, and, yeah. and there were no sanctions. And yeah. there were no, the, the, the international community did not push back forcefully. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are saying that had, you know, this is spilled milk, it's you know, it's easy to say what, you yeah. know, from, from this perspective, but yeah. had the world community or the Western world really pushed back hard mm -hmm. on Putin then, he might have thought twice before doing what he's doing now because he would expect it, there to be some very serious opposition, not just from the Ukrainians. So yeah. I, I very much agree. And I think that um, from a moral perspective, we, we need to be doing more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really want to thank you for your bravery uh, for not simply surviving, but for dedicating your life to bringing this to the world stage. Um, because it's only survivors of the Holocaust or atrocities that you yourself witnessed and survived. It's only going to be people like yourself that feel this in the most intense kind of way. They're going to be able to inspire the rest of us that genocide is still a problem in the yeah. world. Yeah. And we need to address it in a very, very serious manner. Yeah. Um, I want to leave you with a, a little blessing, if it's okay, because um, I always need you know, a um, Thank you. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll just share my my uh, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Mm -hmm. You know, when he was dealing with the question of why bad things happen to good people, mm -hmm. yeah. he said that we mortals don't really have the a way of answering that question entirely yeah. you know we don't really know in order to really answer that we'd have to be god ourselves. Mm. but the one thing but the one thing we can do he said is not in and i'll give you a little hebrew he said the one thing we shouldn't ask is lama which means why mm -hmm. because we may not be able to get an answer why good things happen to why bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. But he twisted it around. He said, we can ask not Lama why, but Lema for what? Mm. For what productive purpose mm. can I take this terrible tragedy in my life? Whatever it is that's going that a person's going through on the individual level, mm -hmm. or let's say on a national ethnic level, mm -hmm. like your people went through or my people went through, mm -hmm. to ask 
what can we learn from this? How can we somehow do something positive with this? Not why, mm -hmm. but what? What? Yeah. And I really think you've done that. You've devoted your life. You went to law school and became an international law activist on behalf of human rights, uh, preventing genocide and, and really educating the world. And you've done an incredible what with with this terrible tragedy in your life. And there's there's nothing holier and nothing more beautiful than being able to not only survive trauma in a person's life. And what I'm saying doesn't only apply on the national level. It applies to anyone listening to this, mm -hmm. going through a difficult traumatic experience in their own personal lives. Yeah. To be able to say, I survived A and B at some later point, like David Gewurzman inspired you to do, mm -hmm. your mentor. Mm -hmm. He should, he should, uh, Rest in peace, and I'm, I'm sure you're bringing such what we say Hebrew and Hebrew nachas and joy to his soul. Mm -hmm. But what 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 he inspired you and what you're doing mm -hmm. is is to take to take that terrible tragedy and losing your entire family and bringing honor to their memory by doing something positive with it, by educating people and inspiring people to know what we as human beings need to do for each other to prevent genocide. And I hope that your voice continues to be heard. And I hope what you said about the Ukraine also gets heard um, in the highest uh, offices in this country and throughout the world that we cannot stand by mm -hmm. as aggressors just take advantage of their power mm -hmm. and do terrible things to other people. Yeah. I, I thank you. Um, so much for, for coming on and for giving us of your time. I know how busy you are and I really do appreciate and I hope we at MGE will have the opportunity to hear more from you. I'd love, um, now that I know you live in Brooklyn, we can get you uh, to Manhattan sometimes. It would be such an honor to be able to host you in person at an MGE event. Um, we're going to be doing a Yom HaShoah mm -hmm. event in a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. uh, interviewing a survivor from, from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to, um, you're really such an impressive person on so many levels. And I, I thank you for, for your incredible work on really on behalf of humanity. Thank you so much for having me. And I really do believe that all we, all we are called to do is our part. You know, it's very easy to get overwhelmed with all the atrocities are being committed. But I think if all of us can commit to doing our part, then our world will be certainly be a better place for ourselves and for future generations. So thank you for all you do. And certainly I'll continue to do, you know, my part as, as much and as best as I can. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you. And God bless you. Thank God you. bless your incredible work. Thank you very much. Same to you.